0: You've got your Bibles. Let's turn together to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. In your bulletin, uh, I say that I'm going to go through the end of the chapter. I, I tend to be optimistic by uh, nature, and then I start doing the work that I intend to do. And uh, I, I determined that nobody actually wanted to sit under a 75-minute sermon. I wasn't sure y'all could hang with me, so I actually cut off the last two points of this sermon. We were; It's going to be shorter than 75 minutes to the collective sigh of the congregation. Let me remind you where we are in chapter 32. Uh, Moses, everything we've heard so far about this golden calf has been explained to us because Moses is up on the top of the mountain meeting with the Lord. And this is a 40-day conversation. The Lord has revealed everything about the tabernacle. And you'll remember as we were walking through Exodus at that spot, we needed to bring the plane up a little bit so that we didn't focus on every single detail. But now we've come to what you might call a negative climax in the book. The story of the golden calf, we're going to bring the plane down in this spot. And over the next two or three chapters, we're going to spend some significant time talking about what's here. And the reason that we're doing that is because... As I mentioned last week, this is called a second fall of man. Even as Moses comes back down the mountain, he sees for himself that the God who has made himself known is proven by his people to be almost completely unknown by the very ones he came to save. We'll read chapter 32 this morning, verses 15 through 24, and I'll remind you as we read that this is God's word. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides of the front and on the back. On both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise in, of war in the camp. But he said... It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, you know, the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, it is your Word, and so we pray that you would grant to us the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that we could know you and see you and hear you. That you would give us ears that we might hear what your Spirit says to the church. And Father, we also ask that you would grant to us once again that a wicked, sinful, crooked stick like me would be used of you to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You know, people sing for a lot of different reasons. We sing in worship because God has designed us so that worship song is able to lift our hearts above ourselves, so that we actually are are, are, are carried above the mundane. It reinforces the truths that we confess, the scriptures we study, it reinforces the, the prayers that we pray, and as simple as it seems, it actually causes us to be nourished and strengthened while we sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Bible says that these songs are lifted to heaven and they are to the Lord a pleasing aroma. We declare the glories together of the king who reigns and rules. What you sing says something about what's going on within your heart. And so that's the reason we sing Subta- substantive texts of scripture. Songs are powerful. Powerful. I was recently driving down the road and I heard an old country song that I hadn't heard in a number of years. I turned it up, I began to sing the chorus, and then for the rest of the day I was singing that chorus. I watched a video of my nephew recently who went to sing for a group of folks in a nursing home outside of Nashville. And in one moment I was smiling while I watched the residents interact with the song The next moment, I was trying to make sense of the salty, wet substance that was coming out of my eyes because the beauty of the lyrics was so powerful. The songs we sing tell us something about what's going on in our hearts. And that's what makes the song that Joshua hears so troubling. It is loud and raucous. It's the sound of a party that you're sort of afraid to walk in on. It's the sound of sin and sinners and it's ugly and it's evil. And yet, those sounds are the sounds of the human heart. Songs and sounds that declare that that in his heart, man actually treasures and values sin. So the account is written from the sense that you and I are almost walking down the mountain with Moses and Joshua so that we can identify with them. We carry with them all the clarity that they had, all the shock, all the righteous anger over the wickedness that they find. And yet, you recognize, even as you come down the mountain, a strange tension. Because even as you feel the disgust that Moses feels, you sort of think, I I think I've sung those songs myself. There are times in all of our lives where we have sung the very voice, the very songs that they sing. And as we take this text and we begin to examine it closely, you'll hear your own voice because it is the song of sin and sinners, which means if you can relate to that tension, you are precisely the very people that God came to save through Christ. Christ atones for sinners only. I have broken this text down into two points, not the four We'll just simply deal with songs and stories. We'll start with the songs. Last week you learned in the first part of chapter 32 how the, how the mercy of God and the justice of God was met together through this mediator as Moses pleads for God's people. And so from the top of that mountain, Moses intercedes and he actually averts a disaster that God would have been justified to bring. Just as he put thousands of Egyptians to death, in one night of the Passover. His divine justice, to be fair, if it was unmediated, he could have ended the entire Hebrew race at the base of the mountain. Paul says their example was written down for our instruction that we might not desire evil as they did. The Lord relented from disaster. And then you turn to verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain and so Moses moves from that which is so incredibly glorious to that which is so disgustingly inglorious and he carries with him these two tablets two identical copies of the 10 commandments and they testify to the fact that Yahweh has made a covenant relationship with these people one of these two tablets is going to be God's copy it testifies that the king of glory heard his people when they cried out in slavery under Pharaoh and Yahweh came in and destroyed his enemies. He delivered his slave people to freedom, but the other copy is for the people. It's going to remind them, of course, that they testified. All that you've said, Lord, all that you've said will do. It's a promise of their faithfulness. Verse 16 says the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God and it was ingrained on the tablets. So you see one writer said this is probably the most valuable two items on the face of the earth at the time. It's the work of God. It's the writing of God. It's meant to speak of permanence but it's also meant to speak of of what a treasure, what a value it is. So that one scholar says later when Moses breaks them. The reader suddenly appreciates the severity of the sin that would have caused him to do something so destructive to something so precious. To be really clear, we've already heard what's happening from from God's description on the top of the mountain. But as Moses is our narrator, part of the reason that verses 15 through 24 are here is so that you and I can hear and see Feel the evil as Moses felt it. Joshua is hardwired to be a military man, and so that's the filter that he tries to translate the sounds. He goes, "I I, I don't know. It's it's the sound of no. It's not the sound of victory. It's it's not even the sound of defeat. They're singing, but it's so loud. In fact, the way that the language is written there gives us this hint." the word choice tells us that what he's hearing is a, is a complete loss of self-control. It's a mixture of sounds. I love the way one scholar described it. It's drunk people singing. It's men shouting as they chase women. It's women screaming while they're being chased by men. It's people fighting over the alcohol and the food. It's men fighting over women. It's women fighting over men. Joshua's probably thinking, I haven't heard anything like this since Egypt. And that is the point. These are the kind of sounds that pagan worshipers thought would rouse their gods if they would simply be noisy and raucous and engage in all of this foolishness. It's the sounds of sin. The sound of those who deliberately choose to lose self-control. It's absolutely counter to what the Bible describes. In fact, in the Scriptures, self-control is not only a fruit of God's Spirit at work in believers, Galatians chapter 5, but it's also a quality which is meant to be nurtured because it's valuable to your own growth in likeness. 2 Peter 1, 6. If you're old enough, you know that for the last 60 years at least, you have watched as your culture has celebrated the loss of self-control. Various religions, various cults glorify a loss of self-control as if it is somehow spiritual. Others of you watch as alcohol is celebrated, drugs are celebrated to help you loosen up, to help you deal with your inhibitions. And I've said this many times, the Bible affirms the responsible use of alcohol by those who are of legal age, but you should be very careful at the lie which undergirds this message. When they say you need less self-control, that is not something new. That's actually the ancient song of pagans. So when someone tells you to lose control or gives you permission that you need to do that, that is far more the tune of paganism than is the song of Christ. And if we're honest, given the proclivities of our own flesh, to not guard your own words, to not really guard your own actions or thoughts, the vast majority of us actually need more self-control in our lives, not less. So growth in self-control is a work of the Spirit that you and I should be actively embracing and fostering and trying to, to grow in. And so while this song rises up and strikes the ears of Moses, when he gets down to the camp, he sees it. And his response is not intended to be another loss of self-control under the guise of rage. No, what Moses does is a very deliberate act. He's doing something That depicts how truly heinous the actions of the people are. One of the ways that you can tell whether to affirm something in the Scriptures as good is based on how the Lord allows it to be told, but then secondly, how he responds. Number one, God does not rebuke Moses over these actions. God's not afraid to rebuke Moses over anger. He'll do it in Numbers chapter 20 later. When when Moses is tired of the people, he strikes the rock twice. Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. In that place, God says, your anger was sin. Not here. Moses is not mad or frustrated with how he's being treated. He's actually outraged with how God has been treated. The the second reason here is this phrase. It says, Moses' anger burned hot, verse 19, which is exactly the way that God's anger was described in verse 10. In fact, this this is a phrase that is used really commonly, more than 50 times in the Old Testament. And almost every time it's used, it's applied to the way God's anger is described. Not like it's just flowing off the handle, but like justified anger. You might say that Moses and God agree on how serious this is. So Moses breaks the tablets as a physical picture of what the people have already done. These really precious stones engraved by God are meant to preach a message of covenant faithfulness. And the people said, no, we'd rather create a God of our own. With our own hands that look something like a bull, so that when we begin to live out his practices, we look like beasts ourselves. Moses breaks the tablets, verse 19 says, at the foot of the mountain. Does that detail matter? It does. Before the Ten Commandments were given by God, back in chapter 19, back at the base of that mountain, that's the place where God invited them to come and worship him. It's the place where God came to meet with his people. In fact, chapter 24, verse 4 says, this is the one place where an approved altar should be built by Moses and Aaron to worship the true God. And so Moses breaks the tablets on that spot in order to signify, you've broken faith with the Lord on the very spot where he revealed himself to you. Is there something there for you to notice? How many of us have broken faith with the Lord in the very places, the exact spot where he's revealed himself to us? the precise places that he's shown you, his kindness, his generosity, his grace, and I'm no longer talking about geography. Any Christian who's dealing with addiction knows what I mean. It's the very places where God's convicted me of my sin, where he's revealed my need for Christ, where I've come running for Christ. That's strangely the same ground upon which I keep coming back to break covenant faithfulness with him again and again and again others of you look at your blessings, your spouse, your friendships, your house, your cars, your church. These are actually all ways that the Lord has been good to you. And yet, so easily, the ground upon which you once called it God's goodness is the very ground in which you call God's goodness into question. God, you know my wife You know my husband. You know what he's like. You gave him to me. God, this house, everything breaks all at once. I hate it here. And these friends, I mean, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And these are the friends you've given me. See, they broke faith with him because they questioned his goodness on this very spot. I wonder if you've done something similar Others of you have seen the Lord's kindness in really extraordinary ways. Maybe it's circumstances, financial blessings that were far beyond what you expected. And there was a time that you paused in that place and you stood in awe. Why is the Lord so good to me like this? And you were so joyful about it. Perhaps that is the exact spot where you break faith with him today. Where you ignore his kindness. You forget his goodness to you. You begrudge your job, your position, this opportunity. Ah. And perhaps the financial resources that he has showered upon you. That's the very territory that you now hold most tightly. We can't afford to give to the Lord because, of course, the economy and inflation and all of that. See, Moses throws the tablets down at the base of the mountain because that's the exact spot where the people lost perspective. The Lord is enough for me. They said, no, the Lord's not enough for me. He hasn't been good to me. He hasn't been generous. He has not been sufficient. He's made all of these things hard for me. The song that was sung during the offertory summons us to wait upon the Lord and wait upon the Lord. That psalm is a great reminder of the failure of the people at the base of the mountain. Verse 20, this is odd. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink from it. It seems strange to us, but again, it is very deliberate. Moses is destroying it fully. He's desecrating it completely. It is made probably mostly of wood with gold overlaid. And he throws it in the fire and he burns it down to charcoal embers and gold slag. And then he pulverizes the whole thing to powder. And the language here is a little bit confusing. He doesn't say, okay, everybody, line up, grab your drinking cup and we'll drink some water. No, very likely what. Moses did is he took that powder and he threw it on the only source of water that they've got at the base of the mountain. Do you remember Massa and Mirabah? And not to be graphic, but they understand the image. Eventually, the very God that they thought was worthy of worship is going to be put in a glass and drunk down their throat. That God is going to flow through their bodies, and that God is going to wind up as waste on the ground. Moses says, that's your God? That's the one you think delivered you out of the land of Egypt? He's polluting the ground. Their song, of course leaves us with one other application. Do not forget that the dust of the golden calf was once the gold that was hanging in their ears. It was a gift that was given to them by God. The riches that were bought by the Lord's work of salvation were were squandered, and these particular gifts will never be used and enjoyed again. And so if you have tasted Christ, learn from them. Let us not squander the rich spiritual gifts that have been bought, to, bought for us by the Lord in his salvation. Don't squander the ministry of his word. Don't squander the works of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't squander the blessings of fellowship and community within the body of Christ. Don't squander the privilege of prayer. Christ atones for sinners only. People like them. And us, we've talked about their songs. Now let's talk about stories. Aaron's example is uh, useful, not because he's honest, but because his absurdity actually reminds us of our own. Moses rightly comes and he confronts Aaron. You have brought such a great sin on this people. And what does Aaron do? The very first thing he does is deflect it. Verse 22 Relax, don't get so upset. You see, he makes it sound like Moses is the one who's overreacting. It's a clever tactic. I've used it myself, and you probably have too. It's a smokescreen. A person confronts you with your real sin. You turn it on the one who brought it up. And if it was your child, it would be so obvious that you would laugh at it. Hey, buddy, you need to pick up those toys. Why are you yelling at me? And then when adults do it, it is so much more devious. It is so much more vengeful. So friends, when you're confronted with an issue of sin, is your first response to that friend or brother or sister who loves you, is your first response to say, back off. It's none of your business. In that case, you are hurting not them, but yourself You're, in fact, despising a gift that God has given you to help you see yourself. Then, secondly, Aaron shifts the blame. The middle of verse 22. He says, you know the people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. This is so subtle by Aaron. He blames the people. And then he sticks a little jab in there for Moses. I mean, Moses, you know what they're like. I mean, these are wicked folks. They're the ones who thought of it. It wasn't me. And they noticed that you were gone for a long time, and you really were gone for a long time. You hear what he says. It's an excuse. They did it, and you caused it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? confronted with sin. This is what people really do very often. They find someone else to blame. I found it funny in my study, a certain pastor made a list of the excuses and comments that he'd heard over the years. He said, well, she looked at me funny. Well, you know, I think I did that because my parents never really loved me. Well, I did it because I knew my husband didn't care about me anyway. Well, I did it because my wife wasn't meeting my needs. Well, the whole thing blew up, of course, because my elders didn't handle the situation right. My boss didn't treat me fairly. I only pushed her because she was yelling at me. Well, he pushed me first. That's why I pushed him back. Well, they went behind my back. They were talking about me. Everyone was doing it. It seemed really normal. Excuses for sin. You've heard those. You've probably said some of your own as well. Truth is, if you're looking for someone else to blame, you'll always find someone else to blame. And almost always, when you shift the blame like that, there really is some bit of truth in your excuses. In a fallen world, I'm sure you have been sinned against. And as painful as that is, you actually can't control any of that. You can only control how you respond. Most of us could find the the tiniest thread of another person's sin buried in the midst of our laundry pile of dirty sins. And so instead of making that one single thread the excuse for why your pile is so dirty, what if you were to take that thread and pull it out and lay it aside and trust the Lord to deal with the thread of another person's sin? And then turn and actually look honestly at your own pile of dirty laundry. Own that pile before Christ and so, if you, in a conflict or a frank discussion, find that you are always turning and taking that thread of someone else's sin and peering at it under the microscope, it may be because you're looking in the wrong microscope. Perhaps you should turn and look at your own. Thirdly, Aaron recasts the story. In fact, what he does, of course, he slants it in his favor to minimize his own deliberate actions. And so if you chuckled when you read verse 24, it's because you pick up on the absurdity. Listen to it. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf, which is so different from how the story was told back in verse Four. when God told the story, he said Aaron received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. But Aaron is saying, no, it was actually a random set of circumstances. I'm a a minor character in the play. In fact, what happened was the stars lined up just right and out popped a golden bull. And God is not fooled. God saw what happened, which is why down at verse 35, God's going to call this the bull that Aaron made. And so if God is not fooled, then why such an absurd retelling? Some might say that he's recasting the story. Some might call it spin. But of course the Lord is not fooled what it is, is dishonesty. It's lying to yourself. It's lying to others. Why does he do this? Why do you and I do this? Why do we recast our ugly stories? We recast them so that we can shrink our sin down into the smallest possible microscopic spot. So that I do not feel or notice the weight of my guilt Some of you, I'm sure, have stories that you've been telling for years, and they conveniently take your sin out of it. In fact, writing this sermon, I I thought of so many stories that I tell that way myself. Spin is a trick to make us feel better about ourselves, to minimize the severity of who I really am and what I really do. Think about your worst stories. The ones that you know deep down, if told fully, you would be laid bare. And it doesn't have to be the stories of long ago. It could be your worst stories from today. I'm not saying you and I should go around and constantly tell the whole world about each of our individual sins. But Aaron's absurdity teaches us that there is something which is dormant in your heart and mine. It's dormant in even God's people. It is what one Puritan writer called the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's the residuals of your flesh. The remnants of the man of sin that once reigned in you. And here's what that stain produces it produces in you a willingness to lie to yourself and to others so that you don't seem as sinful as you really are. Again, I'm not suggesting you tell everyone. I'm suggesting to you that Aaron got to this place because he's been lying to himself. He didn't just create this story on a whim. It's the it's the one that he's been rehearsing in his own mind. It's the one he's been telling himself that's actually the part that's so deeply spiritually dangerous. Because when you minimize your own sin, you avoid encountering the very God who is willing to forgive you. How would you know if you were lying to yourself spiritually? Aaron's example is actually very helpful. To be sure, if somebody was coming up to celebrate This story with him to celebrate his craftsmanship over this golden bull. He'd be all over it. He'd laugh. He'd go, I know, I was completely drunk. I can't believe that this is what I made. It's beautiful. Happy to receive the congratulations. But when a voice of conviction comes over that same story, Aaron is quick to call it some weird accident of circumstances. I really wasn't even involved. Aaron should have said, I caved. It's on me. You and the Lord left me in charge, and I gave into temptation, and I'm the one who made the idol. You see, when you and I tell stories like these, we're not avoiding our sin, we're avoiding the forgiveness. We're actually avoiding the gateway to the path of grace. Honesty over your sin is the gateway of grace. Stopping at verse 24 then. Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for us? Yes, our hope is found in embracing the broken tablets which have been thrown on the ground in the very spot of their sin. Because you remember that their mediator came down the mountain and he broke those tablets as a testimony that they are the ones that have broken the relationship with the Lord. Your mediator the Lord Jesus came down from heaven. And he didn't throw down the tablets. He actually had to throw down himself in the very spot where his people had defiled themselves. On the very specific ground of their sin and rebellion. In fact, the cross confronts us with so much honesty that you and I cannot deflect it. We cannot shift the blame. We cannot... Recast the story because the cross says that your sin is so very specific and so very personal and so very deliberate. It was so heinous that the Son of God had to suffer death that I deserved, that you deserved. We don't want to close our ears to the songs and the stories Because they are your songs of sin. They are your stories of sin. And when you own them with honesty, it is the very gateway of your salvation. Christ atones for sinners only like us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we see ourselves at the base of this mountain. We thank you that your son has come to the base of the mountain and thrown himself down to be crushed for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. We pray, God, that you will bind this word to our hearts and give your people comfort and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.